Hey everybody, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I love my life and I hope you do too. And the reason I'm here is to help you create your greatest life. And whatever that means, I'm finding the world's greatest experts to fill in the gaps, whether it be identifying the limitations that you have in your mind, the limitations that you think you have with your body, and just getting you the motivation, inspiration to take action we're here to help you live your greatest life. And today's guest is going to help you understand muscle building at a deeper level. This is a bit of a scientific deep dive around mechanisms, around understanding new data and research. And it's a really great conversation with Dr. Jeremy Linecki. And if you're not someone who's interested in understanding the mechanisms of muscle building and how to optimize muscle building, ultimately in the least amount of time, this may not be the greatest conversation for you. But if you're someone who exercises, who trains, and ultimately wants to get the most out of the least, this is why we had Dr. Linecki here. We talk a lot about what actually happens when I lift a muscle. What are the things that trigger the muscle building response? What are the things that maybe blunt the muscle building response? after I've gone and done it, what are the ways that I can most effectively and efficiently maximize my muscle building? This conversation is exclusively about muscle, exclusively about mechanisms and best approaches and best practices to build your greatest body. Dr. Linicky is an absolute wealth of information. He talks a little bit about blood flow restriction, which is a very hot topic right now, which has been shown to exponentially increase muscle building with significantly lower loads. Really, really interesting for people who are injured or have pain. It's been shown to decrease inflammation, decrease the inflammatory response of exercise, which most people are doing too much of because we're living in a chronically inflamed and stressed society. But without more rambling for me, I know you're going to love this podcast with Dr. Linicky. Enjoy the show. I have Dr. Linecki joining me here to dive into the science of muscle building, a little, learning a little bit more about uh, the mechanisms and how we can optimize it with our day-to-day training and day-to-day lifestyle. Dr. Linecki, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me back, man. Man, you're one of my favorite guests, and I love diving into the muscle science. And as we speak about, sometimes it's uh, it's a little bit um, daunting to start understanding all the different levels and mechanisms and things that are influencing our ability to build muscle. And that's really why I would have you back, because I know you're really up to date with all the data and what's going on now. And where we're going to kick off is like, historically, we've been told that there's three primary mechanisms of stimulate things that are stimulating hypertrophy. Do we still believe those three things and what are they? My guess would be the three things that you're discussing is kind of the metabolic perspective, the muscle damage and the mechanical. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. To just start off, I think it's one of the things that is pretty clear that is that the mechanical part is certainly very important. In other words, in order to induce muscle growth from exercise, you obviously need to be activating a large portion of the muscle. Now, the question that starts to come in is, is there something special about pulling these metabolites or is there something special about muscle damage? And in my opinion, it seems like almost all of it's probably driven, at least from the exercise, in my opinion, would be the mechanical. Just like tension. Yes. Now, yeah. that's prefaced with the statement that this is not a lot of evidence ruling out the other things. And it's very difficult to try and, and rule out you know, is there something special about the metabolic accumulation per se, or is there something special about muscle damage per se? So it's very difficult to rule those out, but I think it's safe to at least suggest that mechanical, if the other two are playing a role, mechanical certainly seems like it's probably the most important. I would probably tend to think that muscle damage is probably 
not playing that big of a role with muscle growth and the metabolic accumulation aspect. That was something that for a long time, I actually thought was probably pretty important that there was something special about doing that. And I just don't think that there's evidence to support that. Uh, so can you kind of tell me what you mean or tell the audience what you mean when you say metabolic? So like, what are we looking at? You know, the energetic demand on, on the mitochondria? Are we looking at myokines? Like, yeah, can we get a little bit deeper to that? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think the typically when people are talking about metabolites, it's, you know, lactate and, and some of those ions that are produced from just the, the muscle working during exercise. Mm-hmm. Now, from my perspective, at least, you know, I have a lot of interest in blood flow restriction training. And my perspective was is that, you know, given that we're pulling a lot of these metabolites into the limb, maybe there's something very special going on there. And I just, I'm not sure that's the case. I think what they are doing is... I think they may be working indirectly in the sense that they may be causing fatigue. So expediting that fatigue process, which would be leading to more muscles being activated. Yeah. Uh, and, and when we activate more muscle fibers, we're actually starting signaling cascades in each one of those fibers, which is why the idea is, is that getting high levels of muscle activation is probably what the focus should be if the goal is muscle growth. Very cool. So one thing that I I briefly brought up there, and I'd love to have you kind of tie it in a little bit if you are familiar and want to go down that path is I'm very interested in myokines and I'm sure at some level you've studied, I don't know what depth, but um, is that something you feel comfortable kind of at least giving us an overview on? Yeah, I don't know too much about that. I've never researched that. Myokines, from my understanding, the idea is, is that, you know, they're produced and released from the muscle, and maybe they may be playing some role in communicating uh, as well as signaling. Beyond that, I really can't go into to much detail and scrutinizing the literature behind that. Regardless, if that is the case, it would still be a result of that mechanical activation. Right. Yeah. I mean, that has to be the foundation of it all. So, well, I'm just trying to kind of trace the path of... Yeah. So I have an objective with where I'm going with this. So all I want to do is like we said, so we know this mechanical tension is the foundation of it all. We have to maximize, optimize mechanical tension over distance and time and whatever. And then it creates these uh, internal responses, right? And it could be, as we said, it could be metabolic stress. It could be mechanical damage. It could be myokines and all of these things could be in some way influencing it. And then what I wanted to kind of work our way down to is, is okay, so what are all these responses to this mechanical stress? So we've got three of them we've identified. There may be some more that we didn't. And then what are the ways that we could negatively impact those things? So what are the things that we should be doing to not blunt each one, right? So we know if we're aiming for, you know, one of the responses of of mechanical tension is going to be metabolic stress. Well, there's probably some things dietarily and environmentally we don't want to do to negate those metabolic responses. And that's kind of where I wanted to to take the conversation is to say like here, what are all the best practices or, or the worst things people could be doing that are maybe negating these responses? Yeah, that's a good question. You always have really interesting uh, questions. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, yeah, I think that just pragmatically, I, I think two of the things that you have to combine with the exercise is obviously having a good nutrition plan to support you know it, people who are trying to maximize that growth response. So I, I think that understanding that having your protein right after your, you know, not that it's necessary to have it right after your workout, but having it around your workout probably makes sense. Maybe having mm-hmm. some protein before bed might make some sense. But I think if you don't have that, then that might limit your ability to maximize sure. that growth response. I also right. think the the big one that I, I think we may have discussed last time is just this recovery 
and sleep, just training perhaps too frequently. I think that that's one of the unfortunate solutions that a lot of us have in our in this field is we respond. The answer that we have for almost everything is train. You know, you want to do this, train, 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 train. But sometimes we totally throw out the concept of just resting. And I think that that's something that people could probably just very simply do a lot better is have some recovery in between those exercise bouts. We don't necessarily have to be training all day, every single day. Yeah. So a bit of a kind of a found, I don't know if you've ever listened to my podcast, but kind of the way I frame everything in respect to muscle building is everything in the world is an external signal, right? And exercise is a signal, food is a signal, light is a signal, air is a signal, stress is all signals that are creating this internal response. You know that. I'm just I'm just kind of giving yeah, you a framework sure. for what I'm asking. So all these things, everything on the outside is a signal, whether it be sleep or, or anything, right? It's all just a signal that ultimately creates the internal adaptation, the, you know, the shift away from homeostasis and then the allostatic response. So uh, what I'm looking at is like, if I know that metabolically, there's certain things that happen when I create muscle tension, what are those things? So we know we're creating lactic acid, we're creating myokines, we're creating whatever, like maybe you could lift list them off for me, like the actual metabolic responses we're getting. And then the things that we can do to negate them, because there's been, again, I don't know if this is your area of expertise, and I just wanted to touch on it quickly before we kind of move on to some other stuff. But, you know, there's been some data around like not using antioxidants. There's been some data around like not using things to mitigate lactic acid. And I'm curious uh, how much you've, you've looked at how much like, if there's kind of a list of best practices that you're aware of that people need to avoid to minimize the exercise blunting effect. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So even, you know, blocking the inflammation post-exercise, such as cold water immersion. Yeah, that's a, just looking at some of that and just, it's been a while since I looked at the the cold water immersion. I saw a paper come out just a few days ago about that. But it, it does seem like if you follow every single workout, you know, with some sort of cryotherapy that maybe that's going to limit some of the adaptation that you get. So it's not to say that you can't do it every once in a while, but if the idea is is that that inflammatory response is important on some level for signaling, then limiting that in the post-exercise window, that might have a negative effect. It's not to say that if you did that, you wouldn't see muscle growth. I find that hard to believe that you wouldn't see anything, but maybe it limits it a little bit. So maybe that's one thing to consider because I know that kind of this cryotherapy thing is becoming more and more popular. Mm -hmm. So finishing every single workout with that, maybe not the best strategy, maybe taking antioxidants. You know, there's some suggestion that I know that that started off in kind of the aerobic exercise world. There was a paper, I believe you pronounce his name, Ristow or Risto, that came out when I was in maybe undergrad or master's. And that's when I really started to kind of, it kind of piqued my interest because we think about antioxidants being very, very good. But the supplementation seemed to, you know, maybe blunt some of those adaptive responses to aerobic exercise. And now we're seeing maybe some discussion of that with resistance training. And again, that really seems like that might be from the supplemental form, not necessarily eating fruits and vegetables. So maybe that's another thing to consider. Or even, you know, if you're taking some sort of COX inhibitor, you know, may have an impact on some of these inflammatory pathways. So I think there's a lot of things that all of those things may affect some of those inputs as you discussed, but it's not to say that, you know, you wouldn't see some level of adaptation, even if you did all of those. 
And again, mechanistically, we know that, you know, obviously exercise is going to be a significant stimulator of cortisol. And, you know, people are sometimes taking immediate action to blunt cortisol after workout, you know, whatever that may be, you know, it could be you know, phosphatidylserine, it could be high dose vitamin C, it could whatever. Do you think that in any way cortisol is playing a role? Again, I don't know if this is an area of expertise, but I know you're an exercise physiology yeah, sure. expert. So I'm just curious, like what role you think cortisol is playing in maybe blunting or potentially contributing to the exercise response? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert, but I, I think when looking at some of those responses in response to exercise, cortisol certainly goes up, but in my mind, it, it doesn't stay elevated for that long of time. So I think it's a very acute response in, in most individuals. So I think doing things to try and limit that, I couldn't see that playing that big of a role, at least that big of a beneficial role. If anything, you know, it would probably have a null effect or even maybe a, a negative effect. And that's kind of the thing with the antioxidant supplementation. It seems like the best case scenario is it doesn't have an effect because when it does have an effect, it often seems to be quite negative. Awesome, man. So I know your kind of area of focus right now is blood flow restriction. And I really want to get into that mechanistically. I know we talked about it a little bit last time, but I really want to understand or help the audience understand the necessity or value in differentiating between fast twitch and slow twitch muscle recruitment training. So, you know, we know obviously different muscle fibers are, are recruited in, in different sequences at different amplitudes based on different types of stimuli. And uh, I'm curious if you have any data or an opinion on the necessity of training both slow and fast twitch. And if uh, you think it's necessary, how to approach it, not incorporating BFR yet, but like just mechanistically, you know, is it important to train both these fibers or should people just be focusing on one? I'd love to just kind of get your opinion on, you know, if it's even possible to isolate just one. Yeah. So this is a very interesting question. I think that if you ask some of my current students and former students, some of them are very much of the opinion that there might be something to, you know, maybe lower load exercise to failure. Maybe there's something to that of, of maximizing some of that type one growth. We tend to disagree on that. And in my mind, you know, I, I, a lot of the discussion is, is that maybe since you, you're training with a low load, maybe you're spending more time activating those type 1 fibers and they're under signaling for a longer duration of time, which may result in their greater amount of growth. And that might very well be the case. But to me, I think there's, there's enough data that suggests that if you train with a moderate to heavy load, as how most people train, that you can also stimulate type 1 growth. You can also stimulate type 2 growth. Now, the order that I think it's traditionally discussed is, is that you have type 1 kind of fibers activated first and then type 2 in addition to type 1. Now, there's certain, obviously, exceptions to that. But I think the idea of the proponents of the type 1 fiber growth with low loads is that you can fatigue them more um, and that they're activated for a longer duration of time with lower load exercise. So I'm not sure if that's the case, but that's the argument that's made. But regardless, there's plenty of data that suggests that you can stimulate both type one and type two growth with, you know, it's training at 70, 80% of your one RM. I guess the question would be is, do you get a little bit of a greater response when you train with low loads? I don't think so, but there are some people with that opinion. Some of them, my students. Yeah. And maybe, you know, it's not a matter of getting greater response. Maybe it's just less likelihood of injury or better skill acquisition, but, you know, kind of leading down that path of, 
you know, this discussion between differentiating type one and type two, do you have an opinion on how to train to optimize kind of these transitional fibers? Because there's been some data uh, lately, and which I'm not particularly familiar with, but I'd love to hear if you are. Is this concept of, of these transitional fibers or maybe even converting type one into type two? Because, you know, you know there, there's been some interesting data that show, you know, two twin brothers, I think you may have heard this, is like one was a marathon guy, one was a bodybuilder, and they, mm-hmm. they you know, biopsied their muscle composition. It was complete polar opposite, right? One guy was massively fast twitch and the other guy was massively slow twitch. So talking about that a little bit, it's like mechanistically or, or um, you know, practically, how do we make that happen? Because I think a lot of my audience would be really happy if we doubled our, our, our fast twitch muscle fiber composition. Sure. So there's these intermediate fibers. So I think that... You know, typically when we look at and we teach things in the classroom or you look at a textbook, we almost always separate this into type 1 fibers and type 2 fibers. And within type 2 fibers, we have type 2A and we have type 2X, at least in humans. So that's typically how it's always discussed. And the story is, is that when you undergo almost any exercise, type 2X almost transitions completely into type 2A. Now, I think Andy Galpin is one of the guys who really seems to know a lot about the fiber types. He's done a lot of work with this in his lab. And I know he came out of Ball State. But they seem to suggest that, you know, there's the methodology that's used. The the newer methodology can really get at a lot of these hybrids in the sense that we think about instead of thinking about it as type 1 and type 2, we should maybe think about it as kind of this continuum of fibers where you can maybe move along directionally in one direction or the other, but maybe not from one far side to the complete other side. But certainly there does seem to be some wiggle room in there, some plasticity on that continuum. As far as training the intermediate fibers, my guess would be is if you're doing some form of resistance exercise where you're training to or, or close to task failure, my guess is, is that you're training a large portion of that continuum, if not all of it. My guess would be is that if you're training with high effort, you're probably taking care of that already. Now, the the question of transitioning from type one to type two, that's one that's fascinated me for a long time, or even going from type two to type one. That's always, that's also a question that's been posed. And in an adult, in a human being, I, I'm just not sure that that happens to an appreciable extent. I know that we wrote a paper about this a long time ago, about the possibility of trying to do this, but it, it seems like the amount of time that would be required to do that would be astronomical. I could be wrong about that. It's been a long time, but I think most people would say that you're probably not going from type one on one side of the spectrum all the way to the complete opposite, but maybe there's some wiggle room there in the middle, depending on your contractile activity. So in your opinion, what are some of the biggest mistakes people are making in their attempt to build maximum muscle? Is it, uh, you know, again, you said, you mentioned there's two sides of this fence, right? There's people who are training too light. There's people who are training maybe too heavy. There's people that are training uh, too often, not often enough. Is there something that you're seeing just, just mechanistically that maybe is the thing that stands out as killing people's progress? Huh. Yeah, that's, that's a mechanistically. Yeah, I'm not sure about mechanistically. Uh, my my guess would be is that a lot of what I see, because I see it from people, and this is my opinion, obviously. I know I I already know that people are going to disagree with this, but to me, I see a lot of people who are trying to be as big as possible train as if they're a power lifter, um, and that doesn't make any sense to me unless you're also just trying to be really strong. On the flip side, I see plenty of people whose sole goal is to be as strong as possible training like a bodybuilder. So to me, mechanisms are very interesting, but I think 
pragmatically, you know, something that people can actually affect is how they train. So I think there's just a lot of people. Now, if you're trying to be as big as possible and also as strong as possible, then it makes sense to, to do both of those. But if all you care about is being as big as possible, then, you know, spending a tremendous amount of time doing the training up to a heavy single or heavy double, it doesn't make any sense to me. And the flip side, you have people who are, should be doing a lot of that, who are doing a lot of hypertrophy work, which is probably delaying their ability to actually recover and train. Well, I think the reason there, Jeremy, is because you know most people get stuck in their ways and then want to defend against it. Their ego says, hey, this is the right way to do it because this is the way I've always done it, rather than actually having an intelligent, logical, sequential plan. Sure. <laughs> most people just go, man, this is the way I've always done it and this is what works for me and don't put my way down because you know this way it's worked for me. You know, There's very few people who are not dogmatic about the way they approach something. It's like if you went to a power lifter and said, hey, man, I could make you a lot bigger, the likelihood of them following you is slim unless you're someone who they looked up to, right? And same with a bodybuilder and said, hey, man, like the way you're training isn't correct. Right. You need to do this. I mean, this, this is basically how I cut my teeth, right? How I make my living is like I tell bodybuilders they're doing it wrong. And most people are like, oh, what do you mean? I do it great. I'm pretty good. And you know, their ego puffs up and it's a very egocentric community we live in. And, uh, and then, you know, that's very, very hard, a very hard place to come at the world. But the reality is that most people aren't doing it correctly. Most people are just attached to what they think is it's supposed to be or what they've done to this point that's got them to where they are. And I think, you know, exploring these, these concept of really clarifying, hey, man, the biggest thing for people to understand is, you know, the best, you know, the quote that's maybe a little bit cliche is the best workout for you is the one you haven't done. It's probably very real, right? Obviously, you want to have, you know, this kind of Venn diagram existence where if you want to get strong, you want to spend more time in the, in the strength training phases. Or, or And then if you want to get big, you want to spend more time in the, the muscle building phases. But there still should always be this three-part uh, integration of, you know, obviously strength, which is the neurological adaptation, the muscular adaptation, the metabolic adaptation. And, um, you know, understanding that is the foundation of all progress without plateaus because that seems to be the number one complaint everybody has. It's like, oh, I get a plateau. Well, no shit you do because you do the same thing every day. Yeah. And I, with the plateau thing, I think that it's also – worth considering. I mean, of course, plateaus, that's a normal process. I think people view that as kind of, you know, even a failure of a training plan, but you're not going to just keep infinitely increasing in a linear rate. It just doesn't happen. So I, I think that, you know, having that in mind as well, it's not to say that you can't try and do things to, you know, keep creeping out a little bit of adaptation, but I think that quite often people will get to some level of plateau and then, you know, fold it in when, you know, that's kind of, I mean, that's to be expected if you're training. Well, I think it's just a matter of manipulating the stimulus at that point, right? If you've pushed one system hard enough and, and the only way to push that system harder is by doing, you know, going harder or doing more, then there's going to be a, certainly a massive potential exposure to stress from that stimulus. And then just making a slight alteration in the in the volume or the density or the frequency is all you really, it's logically, all you would need to change in a different direction that you're coming from. Anyways, not what I wanted to get into today, man. What I really wanted to, to go down the path of understanding this fast and slow twitch mechanism when it comes to blood flow restriction, because I know that's something you, you're very passionate about. And I think we discussed it on the last podcast, but I think it's worth discussing again is what is actually happening? I know you've, it's been at least a year, actually yeah. more than a year since our last podcast. So what has happened in the blood flow restriction space? And even a step before that, when someone is, is experiencing blood flow restriction, why are they experiencing greater muscle gains? And, and I know the answer, but I'd love for you to explain it in your expert words. Yeah. So I think the, and there's been a lot of good work that's come out since the last time I was on here. A lot of work moving into 
the clinical world where I think blood flow restriction has just a tremendous potential, not as a cure-all, obviously, but as a way to really see some adaptation in people who just cannot live with traditional high loads. I think the mechanistically with blood flow restriction and why you see muscle growth over that of a repetition match control, it seems like it's just, as we were talking about earlier, that those trapping of metabolites, the lactates, the inorganic phosphates, all those things you know, they may be helping to expedite the fatigue process, augmenting the muscle activation. And the reason why I say that is because there's been some good work that's come out looking at the gene expression response to blood flow restricted exercise and traditional high load exercise. And what was very interesting about this work is, is that they looked at it in three different scenarios. They looked at the acute gene response to when they were completely naive to exercise. They looked at the resting level of the gene expression change following, I want to say, I think it was like a 14-week study. So they looked at the gene expression change to that in both high loads as well as low loads with blood flow restriction. And then they looked at the acute gene expression response again once they were already trained. And this is all done in the same people, which is, it's a beautiful study design. And it's amazing that they could pull it off because those study designs look perfect on paper, but to carry them out is a nightmare. So they did all of that. And what they found is, and they looked at, I want to say over 30 genes, but every time the high load gene saw a change or a gene saw a change in response to high load exercise, the same gene saw the same response in the low load exercise with blood flow restriction. So it didn't change any differently. And if it ever changed in one direction, the same change was observed in the blood flow restriction condition. So what that kind of tells me is, is that once the fiber itself is activated, all of the signaling beyond that point seems to be very similar between blood flow restriction resistance exercise with a low load and traditional high load exercise. Now, the path to activating those fibers is probably quite different, but once they're activated, it seems to be remarkably similar. And if you look at the post-blood flow restriction time course, in other words, what happens at the molecular level following blood flow restricted exercise, we see an increase in mTOR signaling. We see an increase in MAPK signaling. We see activation of satellite cells. We see downregulation of some of these negative regulators of growth. We see increases in muscle protein synthesis. All of these changes are the same changes that you would expect in response to traditional pilot exercise. So again, to go back to the previous point, if you lift a heavy weight, if you're lifting 70% of your max, the amount of muscle that has to be activated at the very beginning of exercise to even lift that weight is very high. Otherwise, the weight's not going to move. Whereas when you're training with a very, very light weight, if you're training at 20 or 30% of your max, it really doesn't take a whole lot of muscle activation initially to lift that. It's much different. So it takes a buildup perhaps of those metabolites to augment that activation to where at the end of the exercise bout, you've activated both type 1 and type 2 fibers for a sufficient duration, which results in the same you know, mTOR, MAPK signaling response and the same gene expression response as traditional exercise. Very interesting, man. So one thing you brought up there that I think is worth exploring, and I'm very glad you went down this path, is this gene activation response to exercise. Because as I said earlier, that this is one of my most curious areas of exploration. It's so interesting to me to hear that that's happening. And now, uh, you know, that's kind of one of those mechanisms I was looking at. It's like, you know, is that the actual mechanism of you know, why don't you explain to me like why people should care about or why you guys care, why people are researching how DNA or epigenetic expression or genetic expression, turning on and off these genes is impacting 
muscle building or one, how it's stimulated if we know the exact mechanism and then how it's impacting. Well, you just, I guess, explain one way it's impacting it, but I'd love to know how it works. Yeah. So again, you know, just to preface, we do a lot of applied work in our laboratory. We do a lot of methodology and safety and how best to apply it. Um, and a lot of the external stimuli, but there is a lot of good people doing this, the gene expression response work. But when we think about exercise and adaptation or even you know, why people focus on mTOR. And it's because if you look at some of the early animal models, if you were to block that response, the amount of muscle growth that you see is blunted. And it's the same thing in humans. If we give a drug to block mTOR, the protein synthetic response to exercise, at least in the short term, is blunted. What drug are they using, Jeremy? Are they using rapamycin to block it? Is that a typical yes, approach? rapamycin. Yeah. And there's been some discussion that, yeah, that affects it in the short term. But maybe there's other signaling pathways that occur over the long term to where maybe we can't completely block it. And, you know, there's always going to be a lot of redundancies in biology, meaning that if we block one pathway, you know, the, the human's trying to survive, that there's plenty of other pathways that may be able to play at least some role with that. Now, there's certainly a lot of interest, and I think there sh should be a lot of interest. I have a lot of interest myself, but I think there should also be much more caution than there is currently with respect to these individual responses or differential responders. Um, in other words, if we go and we work out at a gym for any amount of time, and, and any of the listeners can probably know this as well, when I worked out, why am I bigger than this person? But why am I not as big as this other person, right? What is it that's different about that person? Why some people can really just appear to, to add on a lot of muscle mass, whereas other people they just don't gain as much. Now, this is assuming that everybody's obviously training appropriately, but I think that there's plenty of people who are training hard who have differential responders. It's, it's obvious when you look at them. Now, the concern though is, are we actually able to detect why that is in a research study? So for example, when you do a research study, we have to use imperfect measurements. And when we use imperfect measurements, you have some level of error with that at, at the baseline. You have some level of error with that when the study's over. You also just have random biological error of just people living their lives. So all of that has to be figured in to this random error component. Now, the reason why that's important is it's become very popular, and I did it myself many years ago as well, but it's become very popular to just plot your data in a research study and show, look at all these people who are responding differently because some people may have gained 18%, some maybe gained 10%. And they'll say, I wonder why this person who gained 18% is different than this person who gained 10%. Now, while that may seem intuitive that those people are different, if you don't account for the random noise, then you really can't say that that person's responding differently than this other person. And, and there's been a lot of discussion in the past couple of years on this topic. You know, I, I first kind of came across it by Professor Greg Atkinson came out with a really nice paper on trying to differentiate a true individual response from random error. So again, the reason why I think there needs to be a lot of caution is because there's a lot of discussion going on in our field which I think is really premature because they haven't accounted for the random error component. So don't take this the wrong way. I'm not saying that people do not respond differently. I've worked out myself. I know that that's the case or very likely the case, but that's a very different statement than saying when we go to a research study, we can say that it's this gene 
that's doing it, or it's this that's doing it, because it's very hard to even detect differences in muscle growth in response to a study. We recently tried to do this, and we found no individual responses outside of measurement error in response to a, a resistance training program. So that's not to say that one person didn't, but we couldn't detect that with the measurement. So it's not to say that the measurement can't detect a change. It certainly can. The measurements are good enough to say this group of people is bigger than this group of people. But just imagine how good a measurement has to be to say, not only is it better than this group, you're a little bit better than this person, but not quite as good as this person, but better than this person. That measurement has to be extremely sensitive to be able to do that and reliable. And not all the measurements are, if that made any sense. Sure, it does, man. And I think ultimately you need a larger cohort over a large amount of time. Absolutely. Right? Ultimately, you'll, you'll, you'll see the outliers. Yeah, I'm like, it'll be, it should be relatively self-apparent over the next five years you know, what the differentiating factors are in these people who maybe are hyper responders versus people who are under responders. And then maybe exploring ways to, hey, like, how can we influence these things that are, are preventing you from ultimately living, you know, the life that you want to? If you're training hard and not getting the response you want, you know, just, just kind of got my brain thinking around this reality of if you really want to change your body, like we know from a genetic standpoint, it's going to take at least six months to have a complete physiological change of, of all cells in your body. And then, you know, what you do day to day, all these external signals we talk about are the things that are impacting your gene transcription and which ones are going to be expressed. So I literally have to have a six month block minimum of changing my, my environment, my sleep, my stress, my training, my mindset, and, and my nutrition to see a complete turnaround of all the genetic expression. And even that wouldn't be long enough to see a massive, complete physiological change, right? It needs to be, you know, just that's why time is everything. Everyone's trying to transform their body in 12 weeks or, or six weeks, but, you know, really looking at it objectively, it's literally an impossibility from a genetic standpoint because your genes have laid down the cells that you have right now in order to change those. I mean, I, I'm not an expert on the data around DNA, but it's been expressed to me that six months is the minimum time to kind of turn over every cell in your body. So if I want to do that, then I need a complete 180 shift in my lifestyle, my training, my nutrition, my sleep, my mindset, et cetera, et cetera, in order to change the genetic expression. And then obviously there's still only, uh, you know, who knows how much a percentage that I can actually change away from my DNA blueprint. Yeah, I think that's getting at some of the more epigenetic changes, which is where you're not changing, you're changing a lot of the expression, but not necessarily, you know, the the sequence right. of it. And I think other interest in the individual responder argument or the kind of the idea surrounding that is maybe there's something to the amount of myelonuclei someone can incorporate with respect to satellite cells, because the nuclei is what's ultimately seems like it determines translational capacity. So your ultimate capacity for protein synthesis. So if some people can incorporate way more than others, maybe that's one of the things that's under consideration. But I, I but so let's, let's talk about that a little bit, Jeremy, because that's interesting to me. Because I mean, you know, I, I did quite a bit of study in 2013 14 with Dr. Wilson about uh, satellite right. cells. And, uh, you know, there's some people out there trying to refute the fact that you can recruit more myonuclei. You know, my study showed very, very different. What we did at University of Tampa with Dr. Wilson. I'm very curious, you know, mechanistically what's happening there. How can we improve satellite cell translation, you know, proliferation, whatever? Can you just walk us down that path? And is it actually something you believe to be possible? Yeah, I think that most people would, I think, indicate that it's probably something that's different about that person at baseline. In other words, if that's something that if somebody has the ability to do that, it's not from training. It happens in response to training, but there's probably something already different about that person. Now, I think... Sure, sorry, just to, just to interject yeah. one second, just uh, just from a sheer perspective of the volume of satellite cells that, that currently exist in their body, that difference 
or something that we just don't know yet? Well, I think the story is, is that the ability to activate them and incorporate them as nuclei. So I think a lot of this is coming from a lot of the interesting work from Marcus Bamman's group where they suggest that those who have the ability to incorporate these satellite cells may ultimately have the greatest amount of muscle growth. Now, I think that all makes intuitive sense to me. My only concern with that data is that how they separated the responders from the non-responders from the extreme responders. And they did it without incorporating any random error at all. So we don't really know if those people we're actually responding differently at all. And that's what I'm getting at with this idea of, I don't think we actually know for sure if that's the case or not. It certainly could be. It makes a lot of sense to me. But I think that having some sort of control in order to separate those into non-responders to responders to et cetera, would probably be a better approach than the method that was used is, if I'm understanding their methods correctly, is the K-means cluster, where you essentially decide going in how many groups you want, and then it will take your data and split them into three separate groups. So again, that doesn't account for any random error whatsoever, which seems to be quite important to really know if people are responding differently. But the idea is the satellite cell, the satellite cell activation, and the ultimate incorporation of the nuclei. But again, that seems like that's from development, not necessarily someone training their way to that response. Do you know if the study was like doing muscle biopsies, pulling it out and actually examining the number of myonuclei that each cell had and seeing the different responses that each group had? Is that what kind of how they quantified it? Yeah. So basically, they compiled a lot of their data from previous studies. So it, it was a biopsy and they did it at pre and they did it, I think, following 16 weeks of exercise. And they essentially took the changes and then ran it through and clustering basically forces them into three separate groups. And when that was done, the story did kind of pan out that way, but it's still important to know the random error. And the reason why I say that is we recently, we had this in a paper that came out in this over the summer, but we were just illustrating the potential problems if you don't account for random error. In other words, we had a sample. It wasn't biopsies in this case. It was, it was a change in strength or muscle size. The variable is irrelevant. But basically, we demonstrated that there was no true variability. In other words, because of the error around it, you couldn't say that one person was necessarily responding differently than another person. So we already know that there's no individual responders in this sample. But if you were to run a K-means cluster, you would get three separate groups where you can make the case of these are non-responders and on the opposite side of the extreme responders. So that's why I think there should be some level of caution because you can get three groups even when there are no individual responders. And that's true of all variables, that the variable of change doesn't matter in that case. But with that being said, the satellite cells, the mononuclei, and the ability for translational capacity, that does seem like that would be something to really focus on because maybe, maybe that is playing some important role. I just don't know that the analysis that we have right now is really able to make a lot of those claims. Very exciting, man. Now, what are the biggest shifts that have happened in the blood flow restriction space in the last 12 months? Because I think a lot of our audience is curious. And, and the reason we brought you on last time is because you're the expert. And, um, you know, we'd love to just know, you know, is there anything you guys have done differently as far as action items? Like, is the protocol still suggested to be the same? Is there different protocols for different outcomes? Is there different protocols for different limbs? Is there different protocols for, uh, you know, pre and post workout nutrition? What are the things that you guys are seeing getting the greatest response from obviously the shortest amount of time or work? Yeah, good question. From some of our work, one of the things that we were very interested in for a while is, is there a point where the load becomes so low that blood flow restriction is actually required? 
And what I mean by that is if we took 30% of your max and we had you trained to task failure with or without blood flow restriction, the muscle adaptations would be almost virtually the same. The changes would be similar in muscle size, strength, et cetera. Now, it would take a lot more repetitions and a lot more volume to do it without blood flow restriction, but assuming each was allowed to go to task failure, the adaptations would be the same. Now, we were interested to see what happens if we were to get very, very, very low. And this is more of an academic question than a pragmatic one. But what happens if we were to train at 15% of the 1RM? Could we even reach failure? And what impact would it have on adaptation if you didn't have blood flow restriction? So what we ultimately found is, is we had a 15% 1RM condition. We had a 15% with a moderate pressure, a 15% 1RM with a very high pressure and then traditional high-load exercise. And what we found is, is with muscle adaptations, the change in muscle size, the change in muscle strength was the same with the low-load groups. High-load was obviously better with the strength, but the overall muscle size was, was remarkably similar across all of them, meaning that blood flow restriction didn't seem like it was doing anything extra over just doing a tremendous amount of repetitions, right? However, when we looked at some of the vascular changes, so some uh, indirect markers of capillarization and some of the changes in the venous side, it really seemed like that was only occurring with a very, very lightweight if it was combined with high pressure. And when it was combined with high pressure, it produced similar changes as traditional high load exercise, whereas that didn't occur with low pressure and it didn't occur without blood flow restriction. So one of the ways that we've started to really discuss this is with respect to muscle adaptations, if you train low loads with blood flow restriction, the pressure doesn't seem like it matters too much. It will produce very similar changes with muscle growth as high load exercise, whether you're training with a, a very low pressure or a high pressure. But with vascular changes, it seems like higher pressures might actually be important in order to see changes similar to that of high load exercise. Now, again, the vascular changes, we only did that in one study. We observed it in both the upper body and the lower body which gives me some confidence, but I'd like to see that done a, a little bit more. But the, there is some indication that there might be a point where these changes maybe need a little bit of a, of a higher pressure. So that, that was one aspect of things that's kind of changed over the past couple of years. Another is probably, you know, we're, we've always got some interest in trying to figure out a way to practically apply blood flow restriction. So someone out in the gym who doesn't have expensive equipment, are there some ways that maybe they can better apply this stimulus? So I think one of the ways that was proposed a long time ago was this idea of maybe doing it as a 7 out of 10 on the tightness scale. And that was proposed, it was done on a, a small sample of men. We followed that study up and we largely showed that a lot of people can use that pressure to, or they can use the 7 out of 10 in order to rate a pressure below arterial occlusion, but the range of values is very wide. So some people might be rating it at 90% of their arterial occlusion pressure, whereas others maybe at 10%. So 7 out of 10 might be a good rule of thumb to get below arterial occlusion, but the range of pressures might make it really difficult to use in practice. We followed that study up with something that, that probably is even more important is that we said, if a person applies a 7 out of 10 pressure today, what pressure do they apply if they were to come in you know, a few days later? Do they apply the same pressure? And it wasn't even close, meaning that on one day, they may rate a 7 out of 10, 40 millimeters of mercury. On the next day, they may rate a 7 out of 10, 120 millimeters of mercury. So that, to me, really limits its utility and actual practice. 
So what we tried to do instead is to start looking for alternatives. One of the ways that we've done with just quantifying changes in blood flow is applying a wrap as a percentage of the arm circumference. And that seems to cause similar reductions in blood flow as, as more expensive equipment. Now, we haven't done that in actual training, but relative to the more expensive equipment, it appears to be very similar. But again, still results in kind of a wide range of changes in blood flow. So I'm, I'm still skeptical, but I think that's still better than the 7 out of 10. And a study that we're finishing up right now related to that, I apologize if, I, if I'm all over the place, but nope, nope. we're trying to see if we can coach some people up. So maybe we can try to condition them to what this pressure should feel like. Will that help it out? So maybe part of the problem with the 7 out of 10 scale is we weren't giving them enough time to say, this is what we want you to rate. You know, this is the pressure that we want you to, to feel when you exercise. So we're trying to work on doing that now to see if people, if they're conditioned to what that pressure should feel like, can they then apply it at the appropriate pressure? Because that would be very useful to know in a clinical setting. So if you go to the, your therapist or whatever, or you go to somebody who, uh, who's able to give you what the pressure should feel like and, and what the appropriate pressure is, if they can spend some time with you and go, this is what it should feel like, this is what it should, and just kind of condition you to that, then when you go home, you'll know what it's supposed to feel like. And maybe that might be better. Now, we don't know. We're in the middle of that study right now. But that's something that one of my students, Zach Bell, is working on right now. He was He's kind of done that series of studies. And hopefully, this is getting a little bit closer to that answer. Very cool, man. That's, I mean, that certainly sounds like a daunting task, to say the least. I mean, most people aren't even aware of their body, let alone the percentage of, uh, of perceived pressure on their bodies. That's certainly a daunting task. And hopefully, you guys can come up with some logical way to do it because I think the world will benefit from removing the fear around blood flow restriction. Because most people, when you say, hey, man, I want you to wrap this band around your arm and, and restrict blood flow, sure. they get a little bit weary. And having a little bit more of a scientific backing and some validated, uh, you know, objectified pressures will, I think, just demystify it for a lot of people and make it a little bit more mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool, man. Jeremy, uh, don't want to take any more of your time, but man, I'm so grateful for you and what you do. And I always look forward to having conversations and hopefully you'll agree to come back on the show again soon and, and dive into uh, whatever's lighting your fire at that moment, man, because I think we're living the same path of being muscle nerds and peak performance junkies. And honestly, I think all of our audience will agree in, in saying that you know we're grateful for your, your wisdom and your time. And thank you very much for being here. Yeah, no, thanks for having me back on. Again, I always, I'm very thankful to be on here and talking science with you. I have to give a shout out to my team though, my team of students. I think it's a different group of students than I had last time. I had a, I graduated pretty much all of them. So I have a, a new, very good group of students. They all think a little bit differently, but all think very high level and very, they're able to critique things and argue with me. So all of these concepts and these ideas, it's really a, a collection of being, having great discussions with my students. So I'm very thankful for them. So I'm glad that I get to represent our lab, but it's not just, it's obviously not just me again. Very cool, Jeremy. Thank you so much, man. I truly appreciate it. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Today's podcast is brought to you guys by Blue Blocks. You know, we literally reach out to companies that we love. This is not people reaching out to us going, hey, can we throw you some money to be on your podcast? The only way we kind of curate the sponsors of the podcast is like, 
you know, what I would call the Ben approved products is things that I actually use. I find them to be better than others. And I reach out to them and I say, Hey, listen, I've got this amazing audience of people who are looking to optimize their life. And I think they might be interested in some of your products. Would you be willing to offer them a discount? And that's really what we're doing. We're reaching out for you guys to bring you the best products from around the world. And we usually only give you a limited time to get them because ultimately, if we don't give you a limited time, most people will just kind of disregard it and hear it as white noise. And, and uh, guys, if, if you're in, in any way interested in optimizing sleep, and optimizing your circadian rhythms. If you have an issue with elevated stress, anxiety, or poor sleep, getting blue blockers is something that is a low-hanging fruit. It doesn't require you changing your lifestyle, allows you to continue to live your lifestyle and still optimize sleep and stress. And I recommend this to all my one-on-one clients, all my personal mentorship or or physique coaching clients. If you are going to be in front of a screen, if you are going to be on your phone, if you are going to be in some highly lit environment, I highly suggest you get some blue blocking glasses. And if anything else, they're just going to block the overall spectrum of light. They're going to minimize the amount, the brightness of the light coming into your eyes, which can really help to allow your body to maintain or establish healthy circadian rhythms. And without healthy circadian rhythms, you will not achieve optimal health, performance, brain function, sleep. All of these things get checked off that list when, uh, you know, if you're just getting too much light at night. And it sounds simple and maybe a little bit overstated, but it's really not. And if you haven't listened to the podcast with Andy Ment or the podcast with Dr. Andrew Huberman, do that now or after this one because uh, we talk a lot about it. It's definitely worth your time. Guys, uh, Without further rambling for me, head over to bluebox.com slash muscle intelligence. Use the code muscle for 15% off. And this is not going to last forever. So do it now. And I hope you enjoy my podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.